You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. Boy, I have a special show for you this week. Since I started this show, I have been wanting to do a show on heart health for active menopausal women. And I did do a heart health show early on with Dr. Tamana Singh. It was episode 24, and she was awesome. She's a sports cardiologist with special interest in female athletes. So I totally encourage you to go back and check that one out if you haven't. It focuses more broadly on heart-healthy nutrition, such as plant-based eating, and contains plenty of useful information. Dr. Singh wasn't quite as steeped in what happens with active women during and after the menopause transition, however. So since that time, I've been in search of an expert to speak to some of our needs specifically. And I found one in Dr. Martha Gulati. Dr. Gulati is the president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and the author of the bestseller, Saving Women's Hearts. Her practice is exclusively women, including many active women, and she is an avid runner herself. She is also the principal investigator of the St. James Women Take Heart Project, which is a study examining cardiac risk factors in women, which sets standards for women's fitness levels and heart rate response to exercise. She also is the co-investigator on the Women Ischemic Syndrome Evaluation, otherwise known as WISE, and previously served as a co-investigator on the Women's Health Initiative. She has published articles in peer-reviewed publications, including the New England Journal of Medicine, Circulation, and the Journal of the American Medical Association, also known as JAMA. She's also been featured on Oprah. I heard her speak on a cardiology-specific podcast called The Cardio Nerds. And when I heard her using terms like women are not small men, I 100% knew I had to ask her to be on the show, and I was thrilled when she said yes. She explains the cellular differences between men and women and how that impacts everything to do with our heart health and the development of heart disease and how it presents in us and how we do or do not get the same care as men. Spoiler alert, don't. She also talks about the special risks for women in cardiovascular disease, many things that I had not heard and did not know, and how we might want to aim to keep our blood pressure lower than what is considered quote unquote normal. We dive into what you should know about your heart health and how you can't assume that your heart is healthy because you are fit and you eat whole foods. And, and this is important, that you shouldn't be afraid to work with your doctor to find medication if you need it that will fit with your active lifestyle because too many times women will avoid it or stop taking medications because they're afraid that they'll interfere with their um, exercise response. And there's so many different options right now. You can find a doctor and a medication that works for you. We also talk quite a bit about hormone therapy, especially since she was part of the Women's Health Initiative and has spent many, many years in this field. She is pretty adamant, as you'll hear, that hormone therapy will not protect you from cardiovascular disease. And as you know, this is definitely a point of heated debate in the menopause sphere right now. And doctors and researchers have been looking into this and talking about it for literally decades. 
Right now, the most recent research published on menopausal hormone therapy and cardiovascular disease concludes, and I quote, it is not recommended for primary or secondary cardiovascular disease prevention. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It is also really important to recognize, and this is something that isn't debated, is that if you have existing underlying heart disease, hormone therapy can be harmful. So it's important, and Dr. Gulati emphasizes this many times, to know your risk profile, especially if you are on or going to be going on hormone therapy. She also cautions against compounded bioidentical hormones, which she references a couple of times as bioidenticals. But for clarity, she's talking about the compounded versions, especially the pellets that are not FDA approved. None of this is designed to be a treatise against hormone therapy, which can be a godsend for symptom relief. We've done many shows on this. It is more a reminder that heart disease is the number one killer of women, far more than breast cancer. And as she talks about, somehow that has not gotten into the ether yet. The red dress symbol has not gotten the attention of the pink ribbon. And we tend to think mostly about breast cancer risk when we think about hormone therapy. And it's really, really important to get your heart health checked out too. Okay, before we get to it, quick reminder to head on over to feistymenopause.com and subscribe to my weekly newsletter and blog if you haven't already. Each Thursday, we bring you the latest in health and fitness and hormones and a lot of subjects that we talk about on this podcast. You can find us and you should check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Feisty Menopause in both of those places. You can join our private Hip Play Not Pause Facebook group and be part of our conversations there. I have an email, hipplaynotpause at livefeisty.com if you'd like to reach me. As always, if you like the show, please share it with your friends and on your socials. It helps the show to grow and I super duper appreciate it. All right. Before we get to it, a very quick thank you to NutriSense for their continued support of the show. We talk about insulin resistance in this episode and how it can also increase your risk for heart disease. So I really appreciated being able to check my blood sugar levels and make sure I'm keeping them stable for my heart health. So thanks, NutriSense. All right. A couple of words about our awesome sponsors and let's get on with the show. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap.
Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Galati, for taking time to speak with us. This is a a topic that comes up uh, a lot in our membership, in our channels. And honestly, wow, women's cardiology and heart health, there's still so much mythology and confusion and uh, everything about it. So I'm really, I'm grateful that you're here. Oh, thanks for having me. So, you know, I, I heard you use some phraseology. I, I found you on the cardio nerds and I heard you use some some um, phrases there that we use a lot here about women really not being small men, you know, and it's something that is a mantra of ours and it's so important in cardiology. And I'd love for you just to tell us a little bit about what inspired you to get into women's cardiology. Well, I, you know, 
I think in my family, a lot of people do have heart disease or some form of cardiovascular disease, men and women. But what I notice is nobody, no woman in my family lived past the age of 50. And when I was in medical school and I kind of, it it really, I didn't even then put it together until I was in a medical school lecture by, I, I went to medical school at University of Toronto in Canada. And I, this great uh, American woman came to give grand rounds and her name was Dr. Nanette Wanger. And she really is thought of by all of us to be the mother of women and heart disease, really leading these questions that we've all been asking for decades. But when I was a medical student, she mentioned that, you know, we literally hadn't included women in trials. And I, it just like then clicked, I was like, well, of course, if we didn't include women in trials, of course, it makes sense that women are probably more likely to die if we don't know how things work in women, if we don't know if the drugs work effectively, or if we don't know if our procedures work effectively. And literally in that moment, and I was a second year medical student, and not only did I decide to be a cardiologist, but in that moment, I said, I'm not just going to be a cardiologist, but I'm just going to study women. And that honestly is how I presented myself to get into residency, to get into my cardiology fellowship. I'd been saying, I just want to study women. And I've been very lucky because in probably the last 10 or 15 years, my patient population has been entirely women. I asked if I don't have to see men, let me see women. Let me, you know, I was the director of a women's heart center for many years. And I, at that time, I was able to make that choice that I just wanted to see female patients. And when, when you think about it, I mean, biologically, if you're a man, you, you have these genes, you know, you're, you're, you're either XX if you're a woman and you're XY if you're a man. And the, people don't understand just how impactful having those different chromosomes make on how you might respond to drugs given to you, how you might respond to physical stress, but also the other stresses like how you might, your response to high blood pressure, how your response to diabetes is, even how, you know, the hormones that we release in our body obviously are different. We know this. Men know they're more likely to have testosterone running in their bodies and women are more likely to have things like estrogen and progesterone in their bodies. Why is that? Because you're born XX versus XY and there is some people born with other chromosomal abnormalities. And the only point is we, we need to care about gender and gender is a social construct, you know, how we see people. And that's important, too, because that can influence how people do as well in our society. We know there's a difference when you walk in and you're viewed as a woman is going to be you might be treated differently, sometimes in good ways and sometimes in bad ways in the healthcare system, just because you're a woman compared with a man. But biologically, what's inside of us? So what you're born as, and of course, we can alter those things, but being born XX versus XY means that we have different responses to many different things in our body. And it shouldn't surprise us that really there's differences between biological men and bi biological women, regardless if we're talking about the heart, I'm a cardiologist, so I only can really talk about the heart, but I would expect there to be differences when we're talking about the gastrointestinal tract or when we're talking about muscle response. 
Um, you know, maybe the only unique things is when you're a woman, you know, you, you biologically, you have, you know, a uterus and you have a vagina and then that's unique to you. Just like for men, you know, there's other physical parts that are just to men. And so when we talk about prostates, of course, we're only talking about men. And when we're talking about the reproductive systems in women, then we're talking about women. But things that we share, we shouldn't be surprised that they're different. But it's taken medicine and science a long time to really talk about this in, in, and, and, and put some action behind it. Because we're really in the infancy of understanding sex differences in a variety of organs, including the heart. And it, it's very interesting, I think, for maybe your listeners to know that, you know, often the way we do research is we first might look at cells and see how they respond. And then we'll look at animal models that are closest to the human model to make sense. And then we go to the humans. Well, we kind of did it backwards when we're talking about women and their hearts. We started including women in trials, but guess what? The animal models and the cell line models were all male. It wasn't until 2016 when the NIH, uh, uh, Dr. Janine Clayton and Dr. Francis Collin. Dr. Francis Collin headed up the NIH and Dr. Janine Clayton runs the Office of Women's Health and Research. They wrote this great editorial talking about how our animal models did not reflect, you know, who we're taking care of. 52% of the population is women and we hadn't really studied them from the infancy. So now there's a demand that when you're doing research in cell lines or animal models that you actually first report what sex it's in and you be inclusive, that you're including male and female cell lines and male and female animal models. And that will help us obviously understand what might be different about certain drugs that we're eventually going to use in both men and women. But we're, we're, that's 2016. We were only seeing the effect of that law come into play now in this most recent work that people are publishing. I don't, I keep thinking I shouldn't be surprised on this show. And yet every guest that comes on just says something that makes me like my head just pop again. Did, were, were they studying men, men male, uh, mice, and, you know, cell lines because of the same reasons that they predominantly studied? males in humans clinical trials because of the hormonal part or i think that's a little bit of it I, i'm certain that they you know it's much more complicated if we worry about heaven forbid they might be childbearing heaven forbid that they have different hormones but there's no way we're going to learn things about humans if we don't also understand what is happening in animal models. And so that's part of it. Don't don't ask me about cell lines, what, what the reason was, but th that there's that, you know, we jokingly said that maybe the female mice bit the scientists more, so they didn't want to use them and they chose the male mice. I have no idea is the honest truth, but we as the lay public, and I, I'm not saying this not as a physician, I'm saying this as a woman living in society, we should demand that our science look like us in every way and, and form. And that means, you know, from those models that we use, but also when we look at studies that we fund, because remember the National Institute of Health, that's your government money paying for those trials, making things happen. They're so important, but we should be critical of them. We should be calling them out when they 
don't include enough women and we should be calling them out when they don't include people from underrepresented or more diverse backgrounds. And that includes even our trans population, you know, and, and our LGBT population should be included in there as well. We should be asking, how will we know how these things work in our society if we don't study our society or we only study a part of our society that we've decided is somehow more important, that their lives matter more? If their lives matter more, then okay, we can continue to do it the way we've done. But I don't believe that. And, and as somebody who has a vested interest because of a family history, specific to heart disease, but I want to know it for every drug. I want to know what I put in my body. Does it work? Do I need a different dose? Um, you know, am I going to have different side effects than the people you studied in it? In it, And, and is it because of my ethnicity? Is it because of my race? Is it because I'm a woman? And I think we all have those questions. And, and I always, you know, we have all these fancy genetic tests now that we can do and that they're great. And then for some patients, they're really important. I'm not trying to belittle it, but the easiest genetic test we can do without even doing a test is asking people, are you biologically a woman or a man? If we don't even know or, or give uh, some credence to that, we are not going to treat those patients effectively. And precision medicine to me starts by knowing somebody's underlying biological sex. And then I can start from there. I may not have all the answers, but I at least can tell you what the differences are. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I am keenly interested in this as well. Uh, I had, I've written about this and spoken about it on the show. My mother had presented, uh, she had been having neck pain and shoulder pain and a lot of panic attacks. And my mother smoked for years, does not exercise, eats chocolate and chicken nuggets like a five-year-old. Like she, like she's not a healthy person. Um, the doctors wrote it off as stress. I'm like, did you go to the doctor? She's like, yes, yeah, she gave they, they gave her nerve pills that kind of zonked her out. She had a massive heart attack. I'm, I'm so glad she's still with us. So, you know, there's been sort of this public health campaign for decades now, you know, saying that women may present differently. They may have like dizziness or nausea, unexplained weakness, you know, and may not present with the same classic symptoms. And I but I thought I heard you saying on the cardio nerd. So I really want to, like, clear these waters a bit that women really do present most often with those classic symptoms. So can you just clear that up a bit? Like, what are the differences and similarities? Sure. There's always going to be some differences between men and women. And, but I will tell you, I wrote the new chest pain guidelines that came out in 2021. And so they're really new. Um, and we, one of our most important statements, I think, in there was the fact that when women do present and they look like they're at risk, meaning they have some risk factors that have, you know, like smoking, like inactivity like hypertension diabetes etc we should be thinking about are is their underlying problem heart disease are they having an ischemic event are they having a heart attack because we know that women have been underdiagnosed even when they present with the classic symptoms what we also know from more contemporary literature and whether you look at young women or older women 90 percent of men and 90 percent of women 
actually report either chest pain or chest discomfort. And it's differences in how someone might describe it, of course. And we know chest pain might not be the optimal word. I always hear this from my patients. Well, it wasn't pain. It was like, you know, an elephant on my chest or a squeezing or somebody tightened a rubber band on their chest. If I heard that from a man, I'm going to think that's a heart attack. Well, we should be thinking the same for a woman. The difference, though, between men and women is this. Women are more likely to present with three or more additional symptoms, so accompanying symptoms. And chest pain or pressure might not be their most important thing. It might be that they have neck pain or jaw pain. It might be that they have back pain, or they just noticed when they climbed up the stairs, they were incredibly short of breath, and that was not the way it was yesterday. They might also say in their, their descriptive way that, yeah, and I do have some discomfort as well in my chest. It might be gas, you know. There, women are more descriptive just in general. And we certainly know that from contemporary literature. I'll, I'll give you an example though, how we learned this. Okay. There's a study called the Hermes study, like the Hermes scarf. Um, it, it was presented in 2019 at our European Society of Cardiology. And we're still waiting for it to be published, but I actually happened to review it. So I, I think it must be coming soon. But they used artificial intelligence. And that artificial intelligence wasn't that fancy, to be honest. It recorded the conversation between the physician and the patient. And if it heard the words chest pain, it said, okay, they said chest pain. If it heard shortness of breath, it marked shortness of breath, etc. So like any comment that they said, it basically it was using cardiolinguistic technology to listen in on the conversation. And what they found, again, was this was another example of 90% of women and 90% of men said chest pain. Again, though, women were more likely to use other descriptive uh, terms, and they were more likely to have these accompanying symptoms. And there was another study called the High Stakes uh, Study that also did this and, and recorded all the symptoms. And these were all people who went on to have a heart attack. So when they looked at them, again, they found the exact same thing that women did have chest pain. They just also had other symptoms. So I, I always use this hashtag on social media when I'm trying to explain to people, you know, the stories I hear every day in clinic, I use the hashtag listen to women. Because I think sometimes maybe because they're so descriptive, we miss the fact that they said chest pain or chest pressure. And when they're at risk, when they're people that have a lot of cardiac risk factors, we should be thinking, why are they here? Why are they in the emergency room? Do you really think that they came because of anxiety and stress that we all experience every day? Do women actually waste time coming to the emergency room for anxiety and stress? I mean, given all the other things that they have to do, it, it's crazy to think that those, those symptoms are that. I always tell my patients when they call me and say I'm experiencing, you know, these symptoms, I when I advise them to go to the emergency room to be evaluated or to say I'll meet you in the emergency room so that we can just make sure um I always tell them like, you know, we can laugh later if it's stress or anxiety, but not now. Life life your life is at risk right now and we need to know that it's not a heart attack. We need to know that it's not your heart. That's what can kill you. Anxiety and stress, I mean, some would argue it might kill you too, but that's not something to think about that is going to take you to the emergency room necessarily. We would rather 
laugh out the other causes that it might be or or say, oh, well, at least we found it wasn't your heart. Then let's look for other things. I would love to you to talk a little bit while we're talking about a woman in the ER about some research that I came across and that you addressed. One of the things that you said on the show that uh, really stopped me in my track is you uh, said the only thing women do better than men is die when it comes to like, you know, and, and just that we that we get different care in the ER, different triage, different met, like we leave the hospital in a different situation. So like, what can a woman do? Like, please talk a little bit about those differences in care that women can experience. And then like, how she can make sure that we have the experience you're talking about. Like, let's laugh about this later, perhaps, but let's take it very seriously now. Well, you know, this is the sad truth about what we find out about people who have had heart attacks. And we've been looking at this data and we can look at it across the world and we keep finding the same thing, the same trends. And it's getting a little bit better, but we still find that when someone has had a heart attack, women compared with men are less likely to get the life-saving medical treatment. So all the drugs that we know are more likely to save your life if you're having a heart attack, less likely to be initiated in women. Opening up your artery, the, the thing that we do if you get to our cath lab, if you're lucky enough to get to the cath lab, we're less likely to put in a stent into a woman who's experienced a heart attack compared with a man. And, and even if you're at a place that doesn't do stents and they, you know, if you're in a rural area, they might give you something called fibrolytics, which break up the blood clot. But again, women are less likely to get that as well. And when we, we also have these measures that we're, we measure in every hospital, what we call the door to balloon time. So what that means is like from the minute you enter the emergency room with your symptoms to the point that we've diagnosed you with a heart attack and then we open up your artery. So with a balloon, you know, we, we, we have a standard in the United States. We want to be under 90 minutes. And that, that is the goal because time is heart muscle. So the sooner that we open up that artery and get the blood flowing, the less damage you're likely to have and the more likely your heart muscle is going to still be there and hopefully not have too much, if any, residual damage. And we don't meet those door to balloon times as often in women compared with men. So the only thing that women do better than men, you're right, I say this all the time, the only thing they do better is die particularly after they have a type of heart attack called an ST elevation myocardial infarction, which is the one that we should be meeting these standards of care, these door to balloon times. We've been watching this in you know, national databases like the national inpatient sample, which reflects the whole country's practice. We also have a registry called the Get With The Guidelines, and this is voluntary. These are from the best hospitals in the country, and we continue to find these sex differences. And, you know, what? what is my advice? Well, to patients, I mean, I don't know if a patient can actually change how medicine is behaving. I mean, I want to empower my women. I want them to be in a position where they can say, what about my heart? Are you giving me the right medications? And yes, there is some people that could advocate for it, maybe the more educated person. But I even see nurses and doctors experience themselves as women, things that are, you know, in, 
equitable treatment. And, and it even starts before that because we know like your mother that their symptoms get blown off. Like, so they might come to their doctor before it's a full blown heart attack and say, you know, oh, I'm having this discomfort and I don't, you know, is it reflux or, you know, my heart's racing at the same time and the, oh, you're just anxious. Let me give you an anti-anxiety drug. And that, that's somebody who's saying that there might be something going on in my heart. And why are they not getting some evaluation? Because I will tell you, I, I jokingly say this, that men come in, you know, they've hammered a nail into their finger and somehow they get an EKG and get evaluated <laughs> for a heart attack, even though they're really there for the nail that they still, you know, put in somehow put into their hand. For women, it's, it's much harder. And we need to understand that the number one killer of men and women is heart disease. And we're seeing it in young women. It isn't just a disease of the old aged even though yes it, it is more likely but we are becoming a higher risk younger population and you know we sit more we eat more we weigh more we um don't exercise all the all the time we we see more risk factors in a younger population and all of us are experiencing in the medical community watching younger people have heart attacks so i always tell people even when they're healthy even when they're athletic um, to think, you know, if they're experiencing symptoms, it's serious and you should take it seriously and get to the emergency room. And that at least is step one. I, I think that that is the, the first part of at least getting evaluated and getting your symptoms assessed. Is it a heart attack or not? Um, and to not, you know, not leave a hospital without an answer, then what is it? If it's not my heart, then what is it? because I don't know what this is, this just came on. And you know, it, many people have a family history of heart disease and for many people that's the first presentation. I also want women though, to make sure that they get checked out and know if they're at risk for a heart attack or heart disease. And that happens in your primary care office. And you know, a lot of women identify their OB as their primary care. We know that that's quite common in the United States, but even an OB will tell you that, you know, they might do a good job. And I will say OBs really do do a great job at trying to make sure that this stuff gets assessed, but they'll tell you they're not equipped to really assess your cardiovascular risk. And so we're partnering a lot more with our OB colleagues trying to get those women to be assessed. But think about, you know, knowing are you at risk of heart disease? If you can't answer that to me right now as you're listening, you probably need to go to your primary care doctor and ask, am I at risk for heart disease? Because if you don't know if you're at risk, if you don't know what your blood pressure values are, if you don't know your cholesterol values, if everyone just said, oh, they're fine, they're normal, I want you to know your numbers. I want you to be empowered and know what's your short-term risk. What's the risk in the next 10 years of having a heart attack, but what's my lifetime risk as well? If you have those pieces of information, then I believe you've been you've had a risk assessment. If you don't know those numbers, then I don't believe you've had a risk assessment. And it's interesting when I talk with groups of women, I often have them all stand up, not just for the exercise, but that's part of it. And then I say, well, you know, sit down if you, you were due for a mammogram and you didn't get a mammogram and maybe one or two people sit down. And then I say, if you were due for a pap smear and you didn't get your pap smear, sit down, one or two people sit down. And I say then, 
if you had your if you haven't had your heart risk assessed, sit down and almost the entire room sits down. And that to me is always the way to communicate that, you know, that women don't know the risk. We, you're absolutely right. We've been having the Go Red campaign for more than a decade. We're approaching our second decade of this. And it hasn't entirely worked. We don't have women identifying with the red dress the way that they do with the pink ribbon. Women do understand to get assessed for breast cancer. They don't understand that the risk for heart disease is 10 times greater. I I'm convinced it's not it's because you can see your breasts and that's an obvious thing. And you know, for many, many, many reasons. And your heart is just one of those things. It's just like, it's not like it present. Is. Yeah. Um, what would that assessment you mentioned, you know, your blood pressure, you mentioned lipids, like specifically, what would you consider a full assessment if I was going to go in and get an assessment? Yeah. It, it starts with some of the basics, obviously, knowing you're a woman, knowing your age, knowing if you're diabetic or not, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, all go into our risk equation that we use to estimate your risk. But that's only the beginning. And, and we have refined our guidelines as of 2018, where we actually said, okay, there's some things that people have that aren't in this risk equation. And aren't without you without having them we don't identify the people at risk and that is some things that occur during pregnancy that, that are unique obviously for biological women that only occur things like preeclampsia or hypertension during pregnancy gestational diabetes again if you've been pregnant if you've had those events if you've had a preterm delivery or even if you've had a small for gestational age baby or you've had a lot of miscarriages even without giving birth, we should still be asking about the pregnancy history because that will help refine those people at risk for heart disease. Because what we've been finding, it's almost like pregnancy is nature's free cardiovascular stress test. It's identifying people who have those events as high risk for future cardiovascular disease. And, and when I say future risk, I don't mean when you're an old person I mean, in the next 10 years after the pregnancy, you think about what people get pregnant. If you get pregnant in your 20s and 30s, I would argue that in 10 years, you're still a pretty young woman. And that's no time to have a heart attack or stroke. Yet that's what we're seeing in people who have had those events. They need to know, are, are they at risk so that they can really try to modify their risk and, and do the things that they can do, but also have their cholesterol and blood pressure and their blood sugars monitored for the rest of their lives quite closely. There's other things that can only also occur to women. Uh, things like polycystic ovarian syndrome might increase the risk for heart disease. And there's other things like premature uh, menopause puts you at risk, regardless of whether it's something that happened naturally or something that happened surgically. Also, the, even the age that you started menstruating, if you menstruate too early or too late, seems to be a risk factor for heart disease. And these questions need to be asked when we're assessing risk. Of course, family history matters, and that matters for men too, and that we've put as a, a risk enhancer that we should be asking about because it doesn't come in our sort of traditional risk equation. 
There's other things too that occur more frequently in women, things like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Those are diseases that can happen in both men and women, but occur much more commonly in women. And we should be asking about those because we know that they are much more likely to die from heart disease if you have lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Similarly, breast cancer, of course, yes, men can have breast cancer too, but it is definitely more commonly seen in women. And breast cancer in and of itself, there's a lot of overlap of risk factors that are risk factors for breast cancer. The same risk factors are for heart disease. So that's part of it. But the, the therapies that we use for breast cancer, um, radiation therapy or chemotherapy, increase the risk for heart disease. And that's why we need to ask women, do you have breast cancer? Did you go through therapy? What therapy did you get? To try to know what, you know, is this a high risk woman? Women are much more likely to survive breast cancer these days. We've done such a great job. Our treatments are, are outstanding. What are they more likely to die from when they have breast cancer? heart disease. And we don't talk about that. We don't get enough women after they have breast cancer coming for screening for heart disease. And so we need that also to be communicated to women who I know after they have a diagnosis of breast cancer, they're just focused on, is it going to recur? You know, what do I have to do? But yes, you should be focused on all of that, but you should be also talking with your doctor. What's my risk for heart disease? Do I need to be on a cholesterol lowering medication? Do I need, is my blood pressure well enough controlled? Because you didn't go through all that therapy to just die of a heart attack. Right, no, excellent, excellent, excellent points. Um, I had thought that I heard you say that hypertension was more prevalent in women. Did I hear that correctly? In the past, we had some data. When you're older, blood uh, hypertension is more common, uh, possibly because we also have more women living to long. Fair. Actually, if we look at our population, though, in general, in terms of prevalence, it's much more prevalent in men, but it's still quite common in women. I mean, I think the numbers right now, 43% of women in the U.S. have hypertension. So it's not an uncommon state for men or women. What is the issue for women, if you have hypertension as a woman, you are more likely to go on and develop a heart, heart disease or stroke. So there the even and then the risk of death from cardiovascular disease is actually greater in a woman with hypertension than it is for men with hypertension. Yeah, that's good to know. Um, another statement that really perked my ears was that women um, are less likely to be physically fit at all stages of life and suffer more ne negative consequences from poor fitness than men do. And I wondered, you know, I'm trying to like turn that for my audience who is, they are very, very physically active and presumably highly fit because of that. Do they have equal or greater protection because they are, you know, equally fit to these, like their male counterparts? Yeah. So this is some of my earlier work where I took about 6,000 women and put them on treadmill tests and evaluated their fitness. And then we saw over time who was alive and who died. And the more physically fit you were as a woman, the more likely you are to be alive. Fitness is your greatest protection against all causes of death, including cardiovascular disease, which is obviously the leading cause of death. So women who are very physically active, yes, you 
you should take confidence in that because for both men and women, being physically fit, knowing that you can do a lot of activity at a high intensity, that that that's very reassuring. But I will say, because I'm also quite athletic, I'm a runner and I'm a former marathoner and um, I'm in retirement, I say. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I run every day. Like I actually believe that exercise is an everyday gift that I need to give to my body and I don't take a day off. That's just my choice. I'm not saying it's necessarily right or wrong, but I think that we should not, I, ha I take care of a lot of athletes too, because I used to be very involved in the running community when I lived in Chicago. So I had a lot of the Chicago area running association patient, people as patients. And the reason often they ended up there, they thought, well, she's a runner. She'll understand. I can't be hypertensive because I run all the time or I can't have high cholesterol. These people want to put me on a cholesterol medication because, but I run, I'm healthy. Don't mistake your physical fitness and your external look of fitness to somehow be protective, though, against hypertension and high cholesterol and even diabetes. There are things that biologically change. It may be related to your genetics. It may be related to your age. With As we know, as we age, our blood pressure increases. And so I always, I just don't want people to take who are very physically active that you can't be hypertensive. You can, and you still need to be screened for heart disease and the heart disease risk factors and take it seriously if someone says you're hypertensive. I know you run 10 miles a day but you are hypertensive, you may still need medication. You're in fact, the physically fit people are much harder often because they, if they eat well and they exercise, I don't have much lifestyle recommendations often for that group of people. I, you know, it, it's much easier if you don't do things right to advise you, okay, here's the things we can change. With my athletes, often they are very conscientious about what they eat and conscientious about exercising. And then I'm stuck. I'm like, okay, well, then we're, we're jumping to medications right away. And I know you don't like medications and I know you like to run and I know you think it's going to slow you down or put you off or, you know, affect your physical fitness. Talk with your physician but and share those concerns. But heed their advice and and work with them as a partner you are obviously we always want to listen to our patients about their concerns and 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 you know what medications they don't want to take but there's a lot of medications that we can control your blood pressure with and there's a lot of medications we can control your cholesterol with and so if you fall in that category where i can't really recommend any lifestyle changes and i want you to take something we'll find something that works for you. It, it may not be on the first try and you might be mad at me a little bit when you start one medication and it causes a side effect, but communicate with your doctor on a regular basis and tell them what you're experiencing. Don't suffer or don't just stop something without them knowing why you're going to stop it. Because they, you know, I always talk about hypertension as the silent killer, because you may not have any feeling that tells you that you have hypertension, but having elevated blood pressure can cause a heart attack, can cause a stroke. And sometimes it's just age and genetics and, you know, we've got to find something that works for you. Yeah. And people do, I know, worry about those. Well, will the statin interfere with my strength training? Will it, you know, will this blood pressure medication in interfere with my 
endurance training, you know, and, and what I'm hearing you say is that there are uh, many ways up the mountain and that you might need some trial and error, but you should be able to find something that allows you to train and can continue to like. Yeah, it's absolutely. There's a possibility that all, all those concerns that people express might happen, but then again, they may not happen. That's, you know, that's side effects occur with every medication we have out there, but not everyone gets those side effects, but we're living in a really good era where we actually have lots of choices. And so don't be scared. One might not be for you, but there's so many other things that could possibly work for you. And, you know, people always have been concerned about statins. Now we have non-statin drugs that have been proven to be very effective. Some of them that you can inject every two weeks, some that you can inject every six months, and they do not have the same side effects as the, the medication that people always worry about, the statins. And so, I never even worry about it would try them because often they're because they're cheaper and because your insurance companies often won't let us just jump to these other drugs because of their price. But if you let us work with you, we can find something that works and doesn't interfere with you. And to some degree, I mean, find a, a, a physician or, you know, whether it's an internist, family physician, cardiologist that you know, maybe is part of your community because right. they, you know, I, I do think that when we are more part of a, you know, an athletic community, we understand where you're coming from. And I, I don't think it's necessary. There's other physicians who may not be part of it and will understand though. But if you are concerned, there's a lot of us out there that, you know, we just want to try to save your heart. And so we'll do whatever it takes, as many tries as it takes with medication to find the answer. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, I'd love to, to pivot into menopause specifically, because this is such a pivotal point of women's lives, right? And um, I hear from a lot of women, and I've, you know, gone into PubMed and seen some research that you know, there does seem to be this change in lipids that can happen during this transition. And sometimes it seems to happen quite abruptly. Um, I'd love for your thoughts on the connections between menopause and cardiovascular disease markers and what is happening there. Yeah, I mean, menopause is a time that our bodies, you know, change in a lot of different ways. And it is a time I always think that it's a perfect time to be screening at the for heart disease, because it usually is at that time period when women are going through the perimenopausal stages, you know, they might be visiting their doctor because they're experiencing some symptoms of hot flashes and things like that. But they, at that same time, we can screen for heart disease as well. We do know that there's a change in what happens to our cholesterol and lipid levels. And the answer, though, isn't entirely clear. Is it because the estrogen has, you know, is significantly reduced in a woman, because when we replete estrogen, it isn't necessarily that we somehow reduce the risk of heart disease. And so that that's kind of the, you know, still the dilemma that we haven't fully answered as a medical community, what exactly switches on the difference, but we do know that there is a change in the cholesterol at that time. We used to also think that there was a change in the blood pressure at the time of menopause. In fact, I used to often show this slide showing that, you know, menopause would literally trigger something and then blood pressure would go up in women, um, whereas 
prior to that, it pretty much held steady. And for women, blood pressure was much lower than men. For all that time, you know, a lot of women will say that they were told at the time that they had children, oh, your blood pressure is so low, you know, always talk about low blood pressure, rather than talking about high blood pressure. It is very interesting, though, that there is research out that um, in the last few years that has been really intriguing. Women do start with lower blood pressures as young adults, and that is very much true. But our trajectory of increase over time with age is actually higher than men. So when we think about the blood pressure thresholds that we've used, it, you know, like 120 over 80 and under is considered normal, maybe for women that isn't normal. Maybe we need different thresholds for women than we do for men. And I, I would say we're at the infancy of understanding this, but it isn't that something just activates at a certain age and goes up. It really, it's the trajectory of incline. It's almost like, you know, they, they cross, but the woman's line for systolic blood pressure, the top number that we get with your blood pressure reading is, is increasing at a more rapid rate than men. And maybe we will one day have different thresholds for women compared with men. And maybe that's even why we see different types of phenotypes of cardiovascular disease in women. Maybe, you know, the idea that women, young women can have higher degree of stroke might be because of that acceleration in blood pressure. It may also be why we see differences in coronary artery disease as well, because of the way that the systolic blood pressure increases. So blood pressure, I would say it doesn't automatically get activated by that menopause entry. And menopause is kind of a gradual thing as well. I mean, there's times when we start experiencing symptoms, but even your OB will tell you that, you know, there's a point where your estrogen and progestin levels start decreasing. And they check them sometimes when women have questions about fertility, but it's a natural decrease. It's not a, um, it's not like an on and off button. Because uh, then I think we'd all hit the, um, you know, the off button and never allow it to, to switch on. But, um, you know, metabolism changes. And that's why there's a greater weight gain too at that time in menopause, which can also affect risk factors like cholesterol and, and like blood pressure. So, you know, and it, insulin it, resistance too, and insulin yeah. resistance as well. Yeah. So, you know, that, you know, we, Sometimes when women come to my office, they might know I measure their central waist as well, because I think that's a better measurement than looking at somebody's body mass index. Because when you carry weight in the center, like an apple uh, versus a pear, that central weight tells me that there's a lot of things going on that aren't normal. So I always say if your stomach enters the room before you do, you're 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 that apple-shaped person right then you're you have something called metabolic syndrome that puts you at a higher risk of hypertension higher risk of diabetes elevated triglycerides and so that tends to happen more frequently in women usually during menopause it can happen before as well mm -hmm. where well actually two questions i've seen some research recently suggesting a connection between hot flashes and cardiovascular disease and i don't know if you've seen any of that i it seems to be that seems to be very early days too do we know anything about the symptomology 
There is some data. You're absolutely right that the more women who are more likely to have symptoms as they go through menopause are more likely to develop cardiovascular disease. I don't know if we know everything about that entirely. We certainly have some data showing, though, that when women who um, have the vasomotor symptoms are more likely to have elevated blood pressure both during the day but also at nighttime. That may be potentially one mechanism that it is occurring at the same time. Another thing that, that happens during menopause that I find very interesting is that prior to menopause, if you salt load a woman, their blood pressure really doesn't bump up that much. But after menopause, you salt load them and guess what? Their blood pressure does go up. And that, again, speaks to the, you know, the difference of, of course, blood pressure is lower prior to menopause, but also our physiologic response is different. And so there's something going on. Do we know the answer why? No, not entirely. But it is the reason that when I talk with women who were making the first diagnosis of hypertension, and if they are menopausal, we'll talk about salt because before salt didn't matter. Their blood pressure, as far as they knew, was low. And in fact, some of them were even told, oh, you get lightheaded, take salt, drink salt, eat salt, do whatever you want with salt. I'm not worried about your blood pressure. But after menopause, one of the simple fixes I find in my patients is talking about lifestyle. Can you follow the DASH diet? Can you put more fruits and vegetables into your diet like the DASH diet? And can you reduce the salt? Because even for athletic people, they've gotten into this like salt loading because they sweat a lot and they, you know, they're often worried about dehydration and electrolytes. But sometimes for some people, too much salt can be a bad thing, especially after menopause. Is that something that they can check out for themselves in any way? Sure. I mean, in some ways, if they have a blood pressure cuff at home, they certainly, I, I'm a big believer of monitoring your own blood pressure at home. It's much better than the reads in our doctor's office. We make you nervous, apparently. <laughs> and yes. We, we call it white coat hypertension, but I will tell you, even when I don't wear my white coat into my patient's rooms, um, you know, that's part of it. But yeah, having you just showed me your blood, your own blood pressure cuff, I think that that is a great way to monitor it and bring in those readings or just bring in the machine to your doctor's office or if it downloads them. It's a great way for us to be partners in care rather than just relying on one thing in the doctor's visits. I, I, I really believe my patients are my partners and I am just part of their equation and using technology if you're you're you lucky enough to have it use a blood pressure cuff know what's happening at home bring those numbers in and talk about them know if they're normal because we changed you know it was 2018 i think our last blood pressure guidelines came out or 19 now i can't remember but we changed what we considered normal the 120 over 80 is our new normal and we used to accept other numbers and now we don't so you know, talk about it, know your numbers, and know what you're getting at home. And if you are experiencing symptoms, or, at, you know, at home that you think could be hypertension, check your blood pressure. If you want to do your own little salt challenge too, do it. If you had a big salty meal, see what happens with your blood pressure after a salty meal. Because again, 
don't minimize the effect of lifestyle changes. I mean, maybe you eat right in every other way, but you like to cook with handfuls of salt. And I'll tell you, I watch all those cooking shows too with my husband who loves watching cooking shows. And I see, he knows that I just kind of cry a little when I see the handful of salt <laughs> measurement. And I'm like, couldn't they use something else to make their food flavorful? And it just takes time and practice, but there is ways. And I mean, you know, we, 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 it takes us like, I think we've measured like seven years to go through a box of salt in this house. Um, and I do use it in some baking, but I really try to avoid it because my, my husband has, high blood pressure and I don't want to get high blood pressure. So I'm a big believer to try to reduce the salt that we consume because there's enough in our natural food, just FYI. So if I was going to do that, just be, to put a, put a bow on this, this salt test thing, cause I'm curious, like if I was going to take like a salt heavy sodium heavy um, drink before I go out for like a long run or a long ride, if I wanted to see the effect, would that have an effect very quickly? Like if I sat down, like would it, would I see a spike that would be very different from what I'm used to seeing? Well, I'd never advise an athlete to check their blood pressure right after exercise. But like before, I mean, would I check it before? Like if I have that drink and go, would I check it before I go out? Or would I just have that drink and just for the sake of it and then see what it does? Yeah, no, you could check it before you go out for the exercise, but don't run home to take your blood pressure. Right, right, of course. <laughs> Physiologically, our blood pressure is to rise when we exercise. Yep. And also it comes down. And if you are dehydrated, it might be low. But I, I would say if you if you had a salt heavy meal, you know, the kind of meal that we all mm. know, go out to a restaurant, they put in yep. so much salt, your mouth is parched, they want you to drink more alcohol too, by the way. But that that is part of the reason that restaurants have such salty food. But after you have that, you know, if you get home and can sit quietly for a few minutes and check your blood pressure and see where it's at, and if it's higher than normal, you will know that that food does raise your blood pressure. And there's nothing wrong with being at a restaurant and asking them to not add additional salt. There's already salt in all their sauces. There's already yeah. salt in all, you know, the bread that you consume, etc. So it, it is, it's very hard to avoid salt. But you can ask them not to put extra salt. It sort of seems like it's their magic to sprinkle salt on the top of food. And, and simple interventions for people who, again, I know people who are athletic are doing everything to avoid taking medication. Uh, they like to control their health. They don't want their health to control them. And I totally understand that. So these are just simple things that they can do to know if if there is some lifestyle change you potentially can modify. This might be the one thing. And I think in our society, that's probably the one thing that an athlete might not recognize because that sometimes at younger ages, it was no problem. Right. But at the age for both men and women, our blood pressure rises as we age. Excellent. Excellent. So the final thing I'd love to cover here, because man, we've all gotten whiplash from it is menopausal hormone therapy. Um, you know, we, we all saw the data that came out, you know, in the early 2000s with the Women's Health Initiative. And now there's been a lot of reexamination of that and a lot of think rethinking. And, you know, I am now hearing from women in the audience who are afraid not to take it because they think that it's going to, if they take it in that window around menopause, it'll help their cardiovascular health and they'll be protective, you know, but they shouldn't take it, you know, at 60 or 10 years after, because then it's harmful. Like there's a lot of work being done in this area and it's confusing. And many women are afraid one way or the other. 
Do you have any thoughts on this right now? Yeah, so I was part of the Women's Health Initiative, which was that you know breaking trial in 2001 that got interrupted early because mm -hmm. results actually showed greater harm than benefit in terms of cardiovascular disease. Was the Women's Health Initiative perfect? No, but we will never have a trial as big as that ever done again. That was that was for women, our moonwalk. It was the number one prescription in the United States back in that time was hormone replacement therapy. And overnight after that study was released, that changed. Now, if you are on hormone replacement therapy, you'll know there's a black box warning every time you pick up those medications that says this will not protect you from cardiovascular disease. So people, it will not protect you from cardiovascular disease. I know that's hopefully not the reason you've been prescribed it. If you are going through menopause and you are having symptoms that are uncontrollable, affecting your sleep, affecting your function, listen, shortest duration and the smallest dose of estrogen is what we should be using out there again in people that aren't at risk for heart disease and also uh, people that don't have breast cancer if you already have heart disease you should not be taking hormone replacement therapy those trials were very clearly like harmful for people on hormone replacement therapy but if you need it and you're not at risk and you've talked with your doctor and you talk about the risk and benefit and you've gone through it all, short duration, it's okay for symptoms. We don't want people to suffer and we right now don't have good alternative treatments. But again, to talk with your doctor about it because you may not even know that you're at risk for heart disease, which may be a reason to be very careful about taking it. Mm -hmm in terms of the, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions, formulation, the yes, the current hormone replacement therapies that you get are much lower than we use in terms of the Women's Health Initiative. So the doses we're giving now are much smaller. And again, if you need them, take them. People like to ask me often, should I get those, you know, um, the uh, bioidentical, bioidentical, <laughs> on replacement therapy. I will tell you, do not get them. They are very dangerous. They are, there is no bioidentical for you. This is a marketing tool, first of all. It, it Once it's implanted in your butt, you can't get them out. They're absorbed. And there is nothing about them that is actually followed by our FDA. So you may, you may be getting a crazy high doses that can cause a lot of problems. And I, we do not encourage or support their use. If you need hormone replacement therapy, take the ones that, you know, talk with your doctor about should you get a prescription form of a pill? Should you take a transdermal uh, of ones that might be less systemically absorbed. So sometimes for people that are at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease, we might suggest them. If you're only having vaginal symptoms and that's why they're giving you hormones, then use a transvaginal approach because that'll help you with whatever's bothering you down there, but not, again, not get systemically absorbed in the great the way that maybe you need to avoid it. But bioidentical are not safer and not better for you. Yeah, the um, there's so there's so much around that. Um, they have because I literally just wrote about this. So obviously, bioidentical is pretty much a marketing term, but now yeah. like FDA hasn't has made clear that they do have body identical. They have 
body identical forms like micronized progesterone and estradiol that are FDA approved. But the what you're talking about is all the compounded ones where you have a pellet, whether it's whatever it is. And we have, I'm glad you're reiterating that, we have cautioned against them many times because they aren't regulated and you you don't know exactly what you're what you're getting. Specifically, there are women who get the testosterone pellets that seem to be um, problematic. Yeah, you should be getting a prescription for the forms of whichever one you're getting. And, and that I think is so important because we've seen some pretty crazy things go on with the bioidentical and partially from the hormones, but I've also had people have issues with even the implanting. They put, put them into their butt, uh, their buttock, and they, you know, have caused in infections and other problems. So it, it's, and they've, people have suffered. You think you have to sit on that, that part of your body, at least at some point of the day. So be very careful. These are really marketing tools that are, I think, taking advantage of women. And again, I, I'm all about empowering women to be in control of their health, but this is simply taking advantage of us. I, I appreciate that. So we have covered so much. I am so grateful for your time. Is there, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think would be helpful for this very active audience who is doing CrossFit and Ironman and rock climbing, you know, and all the things. And definitely like the heart is the heart of what they do, right? It's so important. So do you have any like last words of wisdom for them? Us? Well, I think I'll leave you with what I often tell people is that, you know, heart disease is the number one killer of women, but lack of awareness is a close second. So know if you're at risk get your your risk assessment and don't always believe that just because you're athletic that somehow you're protected it it you're helping your heart for sure but there is some component of our genes that we don't control right and so the first thing is to know if you're at risk and that will empower you and that empowerment will go a long way All right, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with Dr. Heather Hirsch, who is a menopause medical consultant at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and is faculty at Harvard Medical School. We talk all about what to expect when you start hormone therapy, how to know if it's working, what to do if you feel it's not working, as well as some of the lesser known symptoms of menopause. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. 
The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. <laughs> 